they call it bogan bingo and everybody makes such an awesome effort and gets dressed up like proper old school bogan we've got to control our own energy that's not something that i read in the news that's something that i'm hearing from people in this industry it became very clear that they were telling saddam what he wanted to hear we are facilitators of the discovery process energy is, is essentially a very political business it's not being honest with me it's being honest with yourself G'day ladies and gentlemen, I'm Rowan Irvin and welcome to another episode of Crude Conversations, the show where I sit down with the leaders and legends of the oil and gas industry to tell their story and tease out the keys to their success along the way. This episode is the second half of my hilarious chat with author, adventurer and driller Paul Carter. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that one first as the two episodes are closely linked. Again, there's some naughty words in this episode, so be warned. But enough from me, let's get straight back into Paul's story, where Joe, his cigarette-smoking, heavy metal-loving pet monkey, had just locked him in the toilet. And I thought, oh, there he is. And so I grabbed some toilet paper, and we were playing this game, his little hairy hand. His arm was under the door trying to grab the toilet paper, and I'm playing this little game with him. And the next thing I know, he jumps up on the door handle, turns the key in the lock, and then pisses off with the key. <laughs> and so the, the, door, the, the, the lock on this door was, was some old, I don't know, it looked like it was from the turn of the century, and it had this big, heavy brass handle and, and an old-fashioned lock with a big, heavy key. And I panicked, and I leapt off the loo and realized that my monkey has just locked me in the toilet. And I panicked because this toilet is a concrete box, and the door opened inwards, and it was solid teak, with big brass bolsters. So there's, I'm not, you know, I'm not Starsky and Hutch this, I, I can't kick this door down and I'm naked and, and they, you know, I mean, I'm in trouble. No one's due back for, I don't know how long. And I, I, re, I realized very quickly, I'm, I can't get out of this room. And I started, I, I took the, the lid off the cistern and started beating that and I just broke it. It's a panic. 14 hours later, right? I, I remember I was getting ready to cry myself to sleep in the bath, wrapped up in the shower curtain, and I thought, it doesn't matter what I've done with my life up to this point because I'm just going to be the guy that died because he got locked in the toilet by his own fucking monkey. <laughs> oh, and I could hear him. I could hear Joe running around. He'd already turned the TV on. We'd got a satellite dish on the roof by then. He's probably got aerobics Oz style on. That was his favorite show to watch, which was the nearest thing he could get to seeing the female form, which would send him into this masturbatory frenzy. And, and so he's partying. He's got the telly on. I know he's probably gotten into the fridge. <laughs> he's a little bastard. And I'm going to expire freezing cold because the air conditioning was on in the toilet. Anyway, I got out. I, I, I figured it out. Um, I got the hooks there were metal hooks that, that, that held the shower curtain up. And I, I managed, over a long period of time, getting them straight. And then with the pieces of the cistern lid, it took so long. I had soap on there and shampoo. I got the pins. I got the pins out of the, uh, the hinges on the door. I knocked them out in 14 hours. Bloodied hands. 
and I finally I got the top pin out and then I was able to break the door down from the top down and I staggered into the hallway all bloodied and naked and freezing and he's sitting on the couch with the remote on his lap fast asleep and he just kind of looked over and went oh shit and bolted I didn't see him for a week <laughs> mate oh it's crazy little monkey he sounds like yeah. a uh, sounds like he's a, a pretty horny little monkey as well he was yeah he was vicious and and uh, and, and uh, when it came when it came to the ladies <laughs> <laughs> yes he, he attacked one very nice lady from shell <laughs> uh, yeah anyway and he died he died uh, he died tragically and violently at my own hand accidentally i should say uh which was another um horrible moment because i was really affected by his death i'd, I'd seen inordinate amounts of human suffering um and became quite numb to it. You just get numb to it, you know. If you're, if you're traveling in, uh, if you're traveling in places like Afghanistan and and Colombia and Africa, West Africa specifically, um, parts of Southeast Asia, you just become completely indifferent to the suffering. Uh, but this little monkey's death really rocked me. <laughs> I was so upset. Of course, a lot of these, a lot of these stories are in in your book. Uh, that. Uh, don't tell mum I work on the rig. She thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse. Classic title, by the way. I loved it uh, when it came out. What was it about 10 years ago now? Uh, would you believe it was 10 years ago this month? That was gone uh, fast. That was uh, shortly after I graduated from, from university and was, was working in the industry. So I was uh, quick to jump on it when it came out and, and read it back then. And uh, really enjoyed reading it again in the in preparation for this interview. All the all the stories were making me laugh and, and cry just as just as much the second time round. Um, oh, good on you! Thanks, Rowan. When did you come up with the idea for the book? I didn't. Um, I used to I used to go to these writers' festivals and there or, or speaking gigs, um, and I uh, I. I, I, I this is actually difficult to talk about. There was there was a couple of, um, for example, the Melbourne Writers Festival is is widely regarded as the country's premier writing event, um, and I somehow got an invitation to be a speaker at this, which sent me into a panic uh, because all my peers would be there, including a couple of writers that I, uh, I mean, they figure very largely in my in my value system when it comes to writing. So I was nervous. I was extremely nervous. And um, people would walk up to you afterwards uh, or, or, or at an event like that, and they would say, I've got I, – I, can you give me some advice on, being, on getting published? And I'd go, yeah, yeah, what do you want to know? And they'd say, well, you know, I've, I've been working on this manuscript now for, 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 for 18 years. You know, my, my wife left me. I hardly noticed. Uh, I, I, I quit my job. I'm, I, I, you know, I, now I drink heavily, but it's nearly finished. And, and just, you know, this person's pouring out their heart and soul and has poured everything they've got into this manuscript. Um, and I couldn't just stand there and say, when they asked me, how did you get published? And just say, oh, you know what? It just landed in my lap. I, 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 I wouldn't say that. I'd say, oh, keep going. Don't, don't give up. Just keep going. The truth of it is that it's incredibly hard to get to get published uh, any of the big um global houses you know mcmillan simon and schuster hatchet random house penguin the list goes on um they receive hundreds of unsolicited manuscripts a day um 
and you know they would publish less than one percent. So if, if you start looking at the numbers involved and, and the amount of work that gets overlooked or not picked up, it's staggering, absolutely staggering. And and I realised I had to just sort of stop doing that and just tell people what happened. And and the what happened was it was um, just post nine eleven, and I the oil and gas community had a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the sudden paradigm shift that happened for the whole planet about security. And um, the campaign we were tendering for was that work in Russia, in Yuzhno. And um, the, the, uh, the Russian uh, system that was in place at the time took a very, very long, hard, and slow look at all of this Western technology and Western infrastructure and Western personnel that were kind of come flooding into that part of Russia. And they had a very serious and very heavy and convoluted process for vetting individuals to be approved to work there. Part of that process was a psychiatric evaluation. And it wasn't anything that I'd experienced before with requirements that came close to that. This, this was a full-on pick your brain box apart and pigeonhole everything testing, lots of questions, uh, verbal tests, role-playing, all kinds of stuff, that, that just right out of left field. And um, because there was a lot of people to get through, and, and it was expensive, um, these things were booked well in advance. And so I find myself arriving at Changi, Singapore, having just come from a job out of Vung Tau in Vietnam, where my back-to-back hadn't arrived, we had well control issues and I basically I'd been on the drill floor for about 72 hours without any sleep uh, and just working uh, to the point where the medic was giving me drugs to keep me awake <laughs> because you fiddle with your sanity after 36 hours I don't care what anyone says you 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 you, you are not mentally competent if you're sleep deprived for that period of time and so I was in this bad headspace and and not happy at all and arrived in Singapore and uh, to be immediately told, um, no, you can't go to the hotel and pass out. You've got to go to day one of your four-day psychiatric evaluation. So you can imagine the, the, the mental space I was in when I arrived at this place, and I find myself in this guy's office, and, uh, and he's asking me questions about my relationship with my dad, which is appalling, by the way. So, I, I, of course, I stood up told him what I thought of him <laughs> and what I thought of the whole process and everybody can get, you know, how it is and, and stormed off, leaving him trembling. Um, I was slamming doors and throwing stuff and abusing everybody and, and I went back to the hotel and I, I fell into a beginning of what was to be a, a, a coma, uh, was rousted out of that coma by my boss who said to me, now listen to me, horse, you need to write a letter of apology to that guy and... Um, you know, because you kind of, well, you, you get, you kind of physically assaulted him, right? So you're in trouble and it's, it, there's police involved and, and you need, you need to write a very long and very thorough apology to him. And we've explained why that happened. And it was kind of our fault because we, we were worried that you would miss your appointment and months would have to go by. And, and he's agreed to uh, reevaluate at nine o'clock tomorrow morning and so on. So I, I get out of this beginning of a decent sleep and, Realize if I didn't if I didn't do this, then we miss out on the on the tender completely, and it affects everybody on the crew, not not just me. So I got up and I started drinking the mini bar, and I launched into this 
letter that turned into a 5,000 word rant on what's wrong with the oil and gas industry to put a guy like me in a position like that in the first place. Get back to his office at nine in the morning, hand in my sniveling, uh, supposedly sniveling letter of apology. And uh, this guy, expat guy, uh, uh, kind of a bit of a hippie, kind of, he looked like a cross between, uh, you know, like a, a King Charles Spaniel and someone at Woodstock. He was kind of, you know, and he uh, he roared with laughter. He said, that's the, the single funniest document I've ever read in my life. Um, let's begin. And so I pass, everything's sweet. A year later, I managed to get hold of my very controlled, very secret um, psychiatric evaluation document. And I read it, and it was confronting, because to, 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 have, to have everything that you are pulled apart and just sort of labeled, <laughs> it's, and they, were, they were spot on. All of my faults, uh, uh, as well as all of my, uh, uh, the good things about my character, were all very, very carefully uh, labeled. And, and they give you this overall sort of idea of whether or not this guy's going to be a threat or a problem or whatever for the future of, of offshore drilling in Russia. Anyway, so I sent, I sent that report and my letter to a very close friend in Sydney just for a laugh because he, he knows me really well. And uh, he left it on his computer and his wife read it. And then she sent it to her girlfriend that's the trade publishing director of Allen and Unwin. And I come back from a three-month... We did three-month hitches on the rig in Russia. So I got back to Sydney after three months on this Russian rig in the middle of winter to umpteen messages on the machine in my flat from this woman I've never met, kind of, hi, Paul, you don't know me, but I've just read your psych evaluation. <laughs> what? <laughs> <clears throat> Would you like to meet for lunch? And I thought, what is going... So I, I ring her up. She tells me the story. I meet her for lunch and left that meeting with her saying, here's a book contract. Would you like to write your story down? And I explained that I'm, you know, a high school dropout. I'm dyslexic. And according to this evaluation, I'm a high functioning sociopath. So if you really want me to write all that shit down, I'm happy, happy to do it. And so I did. I did. Three months later, I gave her the manuscript and they published it. And didn't really change that much. They they took a lot out because they said it was non, it was a bit too non PC, and you can't say that about that, and you can't talk about that, and that's a bit that's just flat out offensive. And and so they they cleaned it up, and printed it, and uh, there you are. That the that was the beginning of my writing career. But I certainly had no aspirations of being a writer. Can you share anything with us that uh, that they didn't want to put down in print? Uh, it was it was all to do with um, I write like I tell a story, so I might I might use some very very curt uh, language and maybe some bad descriptions about particular races of people or people from particular countries. <laughs> Just launch into it, and she said, "Look, you know, Paul, if you if you want to sell books in Scandinavia, you can't really say that about about Norwegians." <laughs> you know, it was like that. So they, they, they removed um, bit, bits of, of, of the book that were uh, what they considered to be just offensive and it would detract from the, from the narrative because I was ranting. So they, they cleaned it up in that regard. Um, and, and some of the language was, was dialed down. Um, but I, I did try to, to try and grow as a writer and, and, and use more descriptive vernacular instead of just, you know, going down the Aussie route of, you know, Bad language, four-letter words. <laughs> so, what does your what does your writing process look like, 
these days or, or recently when whenever you were last writing are you are you sitting down the, for the whole day to write or are you fitting it in around oh no no and... no i'm do uh, no, no, it's not like that. It, I, I mean, I, I think I think you're incredibly lucky if you can sit down and and batter out five thousand words in a day. And I'm sure there are writers out there that can. Then what a gift! How lucky! I, I, it comes in fits and starts with me. Um, you know, it's it's. It, it, I might have nothing or no inspiration for a month, and then I'll get this sort of squirt of two or three hours where I'll, I'll just go nuts and I'll, I'll write down two, 3,000 words in one sitting uh, and then I'll leave it alone and I won't go near it for two or three days or more and then I'll revisit it. Is there, anything that, you, it, is there anything that you do to sort of facilitate that, that state of effortless production or flow? Yes, it used to be drugs and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, now you're an upstanding citizen of society with kids and... And what? It used to be like that. I mean, look at look at your um, hell. You could just throw two thirds of all your favorite albums straight in the bin if it wasn't for drugs and alcohol. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, so I, I would often get my right on after I'd had maybe three or four whiskeys, um, and, and 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 hit it. You know, nowadays it's different because I've got uh, two children under ten, and uh, and two jobs. So if I'm going to write, it's usually late at night when the house is asleep, you know, but my brain isn't. And I'll, I'll, I'll find two hours sort of, you know, between 10 and midnight or midnight and two o'clock where I'll, I'll go into my uh, study and, and start writing. So it takes me a lot longer now to produce a book than it, it used to before I was, um, you know, living in the burbs, married with two kids. Right, well, I'd like to shift gears quickly just back to the industry a little bit. I mean, we were, we were chatting the other day and uh, you had an interesting description of, of people's perceptions of Houston being far from the, from the reality, which I, I couldn't agree more. I think this concept of perceptions versus reality really applies to the, the oil industry as well. Um, you know, often it's, it's sort of viewed uh, from, from outsiders as, a, as a, I guess, a faceless sort of... E- uh, evil corporations at times, um, and really, it's uh, it's a bunch of people like like you and I, and and we're responsible for the energy that that underpins the prosperity of of the society. If you could dispel one common misconception about the industry, what would what would that be? I think a lot of a lot of people just think it's this. The, the whole planet is just this gigantic ball of oil surrounded by sort of six feet of topsoil. <laughs> yeah. And if we don't, and, and it's all taken for granted. It's all so overlooked and taken for granted because of all of the external issues that push us into realizing um, that if we don't find a viable, sustainable at the Bowser alternative, then there will be some sort of horrendous mass extinction event. And, and all of those things to do with global warming, population expansion, you know, all of the, it's open to conjecture and it's so difficult. I mean, we'll fight, what, wars for drinking water one day? Um, nevertheless, the system that, that, that exists as it is, as we understand it right now, 
ceases to exist without hydrocarbons. I think it's something like 180 days after we, if we stopped the supply um, of oil and gas within that time frame, it's like, you know, the worst parts of the Bible start to unfold. So we're heavily dependent on it. I, I think within 48 hours of World War II ending, offshore oil exploration began, and it's increased exponentially at this unbelievable rate since then. Um, and a lot of things everyday people just completely overlook. I remember I've been sledged a few times at, at gigs, at events, um, you know, and there's, there's, a, there's a, like a random hippie in the crowd that goes, you're an earth-raping eco-vandal. You're a, you're a fucking monster. You know, and I'm like, hang on, mate, hang on, hang on. Did you drive a car here today? And they'll, you know, sometimes they go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, then shut up because you don't know what you're talking about. Or if they say no, <laughs> you know, I, I rode my hemp bicycle here and they'll bang on about fracking and, and CSG and coal seam gas on the east coast of Australia and all and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, uh, you know, unless you're living off the grid and I mean knitting your own muesli, living in a hemp igloo, um, as, as they did in the 18th century, right, then fair enough, you can turn around and have a crack at, at oil and gas. If you're not doing that, then you are using it as much as me or anybody else and, and is heavily reliant on it. So I think there's huge misunderstandings about exactly what the oil and gas industry contributes to the planet. And that's not um, to take away from the, the importance of finding a, a viable alternative that just the simple fact is it, it doesn't exist right now, so we need hydrocarbons. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, that's what I was trying to do with the, with the, with the bike books, you know? If I, you know, I said to my wife, I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I want to write more. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you write what you know, which was, which was oil and gas, right? So I said, I'm going to write about motorcycle adventure. Um, but that's what I'm going to write about. And it was my wife that said, so what are you going to, are you going to ride your bike around Australia? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going, to do that, I'm going to do that. She said, big deal. There's probably 10 Muppets out there right now riding their bike around Australia. Uh, you need to do it on something that's completely 100% environmentally friendly. Then you've got a story because you're the earth-raping eco-vandal guy that wrote the funny books about oil and gas. And I thought, my God, she's, she's absolutely right. So I, I, took, I, I started looking at it very seriously. What, what, it, what, what is doable for a regular guy just to, just to have something? I didn't want to go down electric, uh, the electric route. And I realized that uh, used cooking oil, um, as, a, as a complete novice, um, can one take uh, used cooking oil from, from, a, from a fish and chip shop? From, from a fast food outlet and um, at home get that used cooking oil to a stage where he, you can put it in, a, in an eternal combustion engine and make it go bang and transport yourself around for free. And it took a while, but we did it. And we did it on a, on a shoestring budget. Um, so did you have uh, like a home biodiesel um, conversion system or were you just sort of filtering the oil and running directly off the oil? I was filtering it and running directly off the oil nice. and putting it into a Yanmar LP100 um, irrigation pump motor 
that was welded to a 12-year-old Kajiva road trail bike <laughs> with a CVT, <coughs> CVT drive belt system uh, out of a golf cart. And, and it had a top speed of 80 kilometers an hour. But I went all the way around Australia, um, 16,000 kilometers on 600 liters of filtered used cooking oil. So I wasn't trying to make any sort of massive big look what I can do statement. I was just trying to to say, you know, it's not sustainable at the Bowser, obviously, but if you do the maths and do the research and you realize that, you know, a few hundred thousand tons of this stuff gets put into landfill every month, then that sort of volume is very cheap and sustainable for elements of public transport or um, freight, things like that. Um, but the reality is that the government, by example, in Australia, would never condone or allow that sort of thing to happen because they simply won't get the fuel tax revenue that they would get through the conventional diesel system. Um, and, and take it so far in Australia that they fine you. If, if you're caught uh, producing biofuel, in a, even if it's in a safe manner, I mean, if you're doing it and you're sort of inadvertently building a bomb, then, then fair enough, you get fined and you get told off. But if you're doing it in a, in a safe way and, and, and you're found out, then you, you get slapped with big fines. And I felt very sorry for the, uh, for the, for the people I ran into when I got out of the built-up areas in, in Australia and went out into the bush, into the farming areas, and I'd park... Because this thing sounded funny and it smelled like fish and chips. It was kind of doof, 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 and, and I'd pull up outside a hotel on the main street of whoop whoop out in the middle of nowhere, Queensland, and and, the, and these blokes would walk up to me and go, "Hey mate, hey, is that thing running on biodiesel?" And I'd go, "Yeah, oh cool, yeah, good on ya." And it was like it was like we were doing a drug deal. I'm like, "Why are you whispering? <laughs> what?" What's all that? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I, I do it myself. I, I, I do it on the farm. I just can't get caught because I get slapped with a fine. And I thought, how typically, how typical of our government, you know? So there's loads of farmers out there that are running all of their farm vehicles on, on cooking oil that they grab from the local roadhouse or wherever they get it from, um, but, but can't, um, can't utilize that and make it... Uh, a renewal, a proper renewable energy thing that everybody can share because our government will, 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 you know, fine you for it. You know, so so I don't know what the future is, what the what, what are, where our energy is going to come from, um, and it's it's scary now because we've reached a point where deep water, super deep water, extended reach operations are, are really pushing the envelope what we're what we're doing now with the technology is unbelievable to to keep up with the with the insatiable demand absolutely but i mean we we were all caught a little bit off guard by the magnitude of the, the shale boom in the u.s and and the glut of supply that that's uh that, that has led to the sort of current price crash so you it is very hard to tell what uh what technology is going to unlock next yeah look it's um I think uh, smarter people than me are telling me about new lithium-ion technology where we're on the cusp of batteries now that can, uh, you, can, you, can, you can get your home off the grid, uh, the power grid altogether, because your, your solar system can now store enough uh, energy uh, to, to run the household when, when at night. 
um, with these batteries that go into the footings or on the wall space. Um, and then, you know, combined with a grey water filtration system um, as, as well. So there's, there's all kinds of cool uh, architectural projects that are going up that we're, we're in, in, the, in the suburbs where people are right off the grid. Um, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. But I, 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 I just don't, maybe not in my lifetime, um, or maybe we'll see the beginning of it in, 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 in the next sort of 30 years where it, where it works. Um, but yeah, uh, our, our industry is in, uh, absolutely endemic for, for our way of life. Without it, it just doesn't, it just stops altogether. If you could change one thing about the oil industry, what, what would you change? About the oil industry, um, what would I change? Oh God, bro, and that's a hard question. Um, then I'm doing my job. <laughs> I, I think I, it would be it would be nice if we didn't have to fight so many wars for oil. You know, it would be nice if we didn't have to look at landlocked bodies of of profit or waterborne bodies of profit and then go and have a full-on war for it because it's easily accessible. It would be nice if we spent the money that we do spend trying to get to the stuff that we consider to be easy on pushing the boundaries of tapping into unlimited reserves. I mean, look at the planet. What is it, 60% water? And we only, we only know less than 10% of what's down there. We've only mapped or done any sort of seismic work on the periphery, um, it would be safe to assume that there are hundreds of billions of barrels that we just can't get to yet that would buy us some time to come up with an alternative that does work um, in, in, instead of just attacking one another and, and fighting over it. Yeah, you'd is think that with... Bold a sweep, is that too bold a sweeping statement to make about no. changing anything? No, not at all. I mean... Uh... I have to agree with you. If you if you think about like the 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 advancement of of autonomous vehicles and and subsea drones, I can imagine a a situation where you've got uh, autonomous vehicles shooting seismic surveys uh, in very very deep water and finding prospects and then setting up subsea drilling rigs that don't require any human intervention or human control at all. And yeah, this. There's a lot of possibilities in the pipeline. I can I can remember having uh, I, the technology is just un, the, the leaps, the leaps in in my time. I mean, unbelievable. Um, but you just go on LinkedIn. You know what? It, it makes me laugh because I remember when that. I don't. I don't. Go, I hate social networking. I'm I'm useless at it. Right. But <laughs> I remember, I remember joining LinkedIn when it started, and. Um, Suddenly, you're, you're, you're in that uh, network of, 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 the, of the global, the internet, and, and all these drilling hands and blokes I hadn't spoken to or, or, or run into in years would pop up on, on, on LinkedIn. And you get that little photograph of their, their is it profile photograph, you know, and if it was a drilling guy, there you go, bang, there's a, there's a photograph of a bloke just, just covered in shit, and he's standing there, and he, he's holding on to the brake. And he's an oil man. He's, he's got, maybe he's got his foot up on the slips or he's leaning against the draw works and he's an oil man, you know. But now, bing, up comes Bill Smith, 
who's a tool pusher, and, and, and he's in the cyber... He's, he might as well be in a dinner suit. He, he's in this lovely Captain Kirk cyber chair with, in the Perspex bubble thing with the, with the bank of monitors, and, uh, yeah, he's, it's, it's wonderful. He's in complete refinement. It's better appointed than my lounge room, and he's kind of there, and it's kind of, ooh. And, and then you realize that um, the directional guys... You know, they don't actually get anywhere near a helicopter now because they're they're drilling that well from the office. It's it's all in in real time. All their downhole information and everything that they're doing is happening from a nice, comfortable office in downtown Houston or downtown Perth. Um, it's it, it integrated fly-by-wire. You know, cyber chair, the whole, it, I really struggle to wrap my head around the technology that, that, that's going on right now. Unbelievable. And of course, the, uh, the further those guys are away from, from the moving parts, the, uh, the safer it is. And uh, so that's a, a real positive move for the, for the industry, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I think back to, uh, to just, just my short time, you know, to go back to the late 80s and it's diametrically different, unbelievable changes. You know, just the thought of a man not having to even go anywhere near the rig to do his job because of computers, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. So uh, I think we're going to see some, we're going to see some uh, amazing leaps forward in, uh, in this century. Well, this century has to, it has to, it has to, 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 to be as, as, as big a jump as the space race was in the 60s right now uh, if, if, if it's all going to pan out in, in, a, in, a, in a good way for us in the future. This, this is the century that will mark significant change for all of us. And if it doesn't, then uh, that, that's when I get scared uh, for, for my kids and their kids' generations, what it's going to be like, you know. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, Paul, I've got a few rapid-fire questions to, to finish up the interview um, on a slightly lighter note. Um, they'll be pretty quick questions, but feel free to, to fire back with a long answer if you've, if you've got someone. The first one would be you walk into a bar after a month on a dry rig. What do you order? Uh, a Macallan, uh, 18, neat, a triple. Oh, oh got me salivating at the <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. might, might be inappropriate for you to be drinking one right now early in the morning but uh it's it's late in the evening for me so i might have to grab a nightcap after this um, oh, good man. <laughs> and uh maybe if we uh if we find ourselves in the same time zone we'll have to share a mccallan at some point but yeah it's my favorite um name one person you consider to be successful and why what, anyone on the planet? Past, present, anyone. When, when you hear the word successful, who pops into your head? Um, David Attenborough. Why? Um, because because he's, uh, he's one of my heroes because he's gotten to do exactly what makes him happy um, for a career that's lasted 60 years. And he's changed so many lives and brought so much knowledge about the natural world to so many people and, and he's loved it. You just, you just know he's loved every second of it. And he's, his whole life has just been this unbelievable adventure to every single corner of the planet and it's all been documented and he's just this wonderful, amazing man. 
um, he's one of my heroes. Uh, he's just, I think he's a legend. He's awesome. I think that's the, the, the definition of success is to, it's not money. It's not um, power. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's, in the, it's in your constitution. It's the pursuit of happiness. It's if you, if being happy um, with your life um, and, and your family. That's, that's my, that's success. If you're at peace with yourself, if you're if you're doing something that that makes you happy, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, that's that's success. That's getting up in the morning and and going, yep, yeah, you beauty, I'm off to work. I'm doing it. I'm doing my thing. That's that's it. It's that simple. I don't think I think it gets so overcomplicated when people um, put these pressures on themselves to to have stuff, just stuff, the bigger house, the car, and the whatever. It, it's um. I used to be like that. I was I was all about, um, you know, the having some possession or some motorcycle or something. I, I thought oh, that that'll make me happy if I get that. If I do that, it's not. It's uh, it's it's just, it's just stuff. If it's really nice stuff, it goes to someone else when you snuff it anyway. It's just a thing. It's it's what you're doing, uh, how you're changing your kids and how you're interacting with your family and friends, and that's what. That's the meat of it. That's that's what it is. So as long as long as you're doing something that you uh, that makes you truly happy, uh, and you go to bed at night and sleep the peaceful, restful sleep of a chap that's happy, there's no substitute. That's it. Very sage advice. I couldn't agree more. Oh, good. <laughs> if if you were to take six months off to study with someone, past or present, who would you pick, and what would you study from them? If I was going to take six months off to study with anybody, past or present, mm-hmm. I would. Um, oh God, that's a hard question. Um, but oh, I Steve McQueen. I'd, I'd take six months off to do an advanced driver training course and motorcycle racing course with Steve McQueen. Brilliant. <laughs> love it. What? Yeah, that's that. That's it. I, I love my I love my cars and my racing bikes, and um, he's kind of a kind of a hetero fat cat, middle aged misogynistic boozy kind of you know race pig. Uh, I think if you were going to do something like that, he's he's the kind of character that could be loads of fun. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. You'd be uh, you'd be lucky to survive the six months, but it'd be a lot of fun. Yes. Now, a- apart from your own books, of course, uh, what what books have you gifted the most to other people? Oh, um, um, Oh God! I can see the cover. I can't see the title. It's that. It's that. Um, you, you, you get them on Rig Zone. It's <laughs> the, the, um, an, an introduction. An introduction to oil well drilling, Volume Six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. An introdu- I think that's the correct title. An introduction to oil well drilling, Revision Six. Obviously, it went from Revision One to Six, and I've given all of those revisions away in in large numbers because um, I think it's a wonderful uh, book to as a, as a as a as a as a guide for a greenhorn. Some worm arrives on the rig, 
you know what? That's that's something else that doesn't happen anymore. Maybe it's because it doesn't need to. Um, but whenever whenever somebody new came in, and we had, you know, it's that same young face underneath a brand new hard hat, standing in the corner of the drill floor. Go over there and stand by the choke manifold and don't move. Just watch. And they've got that look, you know, that look, you know what horses look like when they're scared? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they look like. And <laughs> wide eyes and, and uh, you know, and, and they're, they're, they'll make some statement about safety. Just stay there, you know. Don't put your fingers where you wouldn't put your dick, okay? And, and, and so I would, I would make a point of gifting them a copy of, um, of that book. Yes, an introduction to oil well drilling volume, whatever it was, because it was a lovely book. Because it was, it's put together so that anybody can read it and understand what's going on, uh, what, why why they're doing that on the drill floor, what's going on down hole, and uh, and and it gives you a really great broad scopes look at all of the different people that that, that you're going to come into 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 contact with, and uh, why. They they're called a tool pusher, and you know why he's called a Derrickman, and and it's a, just a wonderful tool, um, which we, I, I made a point of always giving a copy of that book to anybody new that came on, um, instead of just giving them a tally book and 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 yelling at them, you know. So I think I think if that if there was, that's the most prolific piece of literature that I've given as a gift or given to uh, someone, it would be that book. I'm embarrassed to admit it's uh, it's missing from my library, so I'll have to uh, have to pick that one up on Amazon shortly. Yeah, have a have a look. I always ordered them. Uh, I always ordered them. I well, back when when before the internet, I would order them from the um, um, API, or or I used to buy them from from Rigzone as well. You know, now and again, I would give copies away of of, of books. But no, it's not. It's that's that. If there was something I would specifically go to a bookshop or go, or go and order to give, it was that book. Well, two final questions. Uh, I'm very interested to hear what adventures you have planned for the future. Um, I had a I had a bike plan. I had a great bike plan. It was it was great. You could you could nail it to Donald Trump and throw it over Trump Towers. It was great. <laughs> Um, it was, it was, I was going to, I bought a motorcycle called a Ural. It's a Russian motorbike. Um, in Australia, Ural is a, is a urinary tract, um, infection medication. So you just, you say Ural in this country and they go, what, what? <laughs> no, it's a motorbike. Um, and, and what happened was the Russians, the Russians copied the Germans, um, at the end of world war two. And they basically took a, a, BMW flat boxer twin engine and pulled it apart and made their version of it. And um, it's just this bulletproof. It's the AK-47 of motorbikes. This thing. It's just it's just this huge, solid, um, very old-fashioned uh, motorbike. They haven't changed the way it looks much in in 60 years. And you can they still make motorbikes. You can you can buy them over here in Australia. So it's a, it's a very robust, very agricultural-looking motorcycle, and it comes with a sidecar, and the sidecar is huge. The this sidecar is designed to house a 30-caliber machine gun, um, but but um, obviously I, I, I didn't order one with a gun, and um, 
it's got this it's got this great system where the sidecar wheel is is also driven and it has a reverse gear so so this thing will go up the side of a mountain they're just absolutely rock solid very simple um great bikes so my plan my adventure i decided i was going to do another bike thing and i wanted to do something motorcycle travel adventures being done to a death um by so many people um it's hard to think of something that hasn't been done or hasn't been twisted around and made into some sort of awful structured reality television program. Um, anyway, what I decided to do was to get this Ural and have it retrofitted with a special seat and harness. And um, I was going to ride it with, with my, my, uh, my colleague on this journey That's, that was a 13-year-old adult male chimp called Jocko, who, who is the um, pet of a, uh, a wealthy Japanese industrialist that I know, and uh, he's had uh, Jocko since infancy, but uh, Jocko uh, has a natural penchant for motorbikes and, uh, and rides a, a Honda 50. He can do wheel stands on this thing. He's quite a, quite a little biker. So um, several trips to Japan, several trips hanging out with Jocko, you know, karaoke bar, doing the near-death bloated last stages of Elvis with the cushion up my jumper while he's going... You know, we really bonded as men, and and uh, so I, I convinced his owner to can I please have Jocko for for a month because I'm going to ride around all four Japanese islands on a Russian Ural with Jocko in the sidecar, and he said okay. So I'm I'm thinking well, it's going to be great. You know, I'm picturing us having a cold beer at the end of the day overlooking the mountains, over the campfire. Um, and Japan really is the only country in the world where you could actually do something that idiotic and do it legally and, and be properly insured to do it, which involves getting their roads and traffic authorities' permission to, 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 to take a, a large and very powerful primate on a motorcycle journey. And, and they said, okay, you can do it, but you've got to have a, a, a properly um, qualified uh, primate veterinarian follow you around with a gun, um, a tranquilizer gun. And so I find I find the right uh, vet with the right weapon, and uh, he's a BMW rider. So we get it. We get everything in place. It's all good to go. Um, and I organized the bike, had it retrofitted with the seat and the harness. I even got on a special helmet and jacket, and I sent it over to um, a pipe holding yard in Sendai uh, with some, some oil field uh, mates in, in Japan offered me very kindly a, a, store, a small storage shed where I could put the bike and um, Tucker was going to grab Jocko in his late model Honda Civic and drive him up to Sendai, get him on the bike and get him used to being in the sidecar for, for, for a good few weeks before I was going to arrive and start the trip. So my plan initially was to take the biodiesel land speed bike, uh, the one that we built two years ago, three years ago. Uh, to, to get the land speed record in Australia on the salt. And then a week after that, I was going to fly to Sendai, grab the bike out of the pipe storage yard, get Jocko, you know, drive it down to Tokyo, get Jocko and start the journey. And that was all set up and it was all ready to go. We did the land speed thing, got back to Perth. And there's this look on my wife's face. And I said, what? And she, she just said, turn on the TV. And it was the tsunami, the tsunami that hit Sendai. Um, Jocko was doing uh, eccentrically bigger circles, bigger laps around Sendai with Tucker, getting him used to 
being in the bike. And by all accounts, he was completely at peace. And he was doing he was doing what we Aussies refer to as dick watching. So he was so comfortable on that bike, he was asleep with his you know head slumped forward and a long string of drool connecting his bottom lip to his crotch. They were chucking one of his sleeping laps, and uh, it's all gone. It, it, it's gone. He's gone. Everyone's gone. So that scuppered my plans completely. It's terribly sad. I successfully managed to kill another primate. Um, that was my plan, but obviously I can't do it because, you know, motorcycle riding chimps don't grow on trees. Right. That's, that's tragic. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's tragic. So I'm, I'm, I, right now I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm without a, a, a current adventure, um, but stuff happens all the time, so I'm working on it. I, I do hear you're uh, you're working on a film though, based on uh, some of these fantastic stories you've told told us today. Yes, uh, the 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 feature film adaptation of Don't Tell Mum is in development uh, with a with a with an Australian um, firm called Madman Entertainment. Um, so it's in its fourth draft screenplay uh, adaptation. Um, which is really exciting. I've, I've, I've read it. It's funny. Um, it's be- I suppose it's best described as when I ask them, they say it's like it's like train spotting, lock stock, and the hangover thrown into one. So it, it'll be <laughs> it'll be a wait to see it. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? It's it's it, it will be a, a good, decent, accurate look at. At oil and gas as it was in the past, not now. That's fantastic because I, you know, there's not a lot of that out there in the in the film world. Well, no, and and and, and it's sadly that sort of proper farmyard malviolence doesn't really exist in, in oil and gas anymore at all. So, um, I, I'm going on the screenplay. If what's in the screenplay is transferred. Um, it's like it's it's like looking at a, um, a a concept car. I think I think a lot of what you see in the concept at Geneva every year that finally translates into final production is there's a lot go a lot gets left on the wayside. I hope that's not the case with the screenplay when it does get turned into the film because the screenplay's brilliant. I love it. It, it makes me laugh out loud. So I really hope that uh, when they get to the stage of shooting. It, it, it'd be a wonderful adventure to just sit in, sit in the periphery and watch that happen. If you could pick anyone in the world, who would you pick to play you? To play me? Um, um, there, is, there is one actor that I really like. I, I mean, I have no sway in this or, or uh, influence on, on the decision, decisions that get made with casting, but I like Travis Fimmel. He's an Australian actor. Okay. Um, I'd love to see him um, as, 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 as my character because it, you know, he needs to be in his mid-30s and um, uh, at that sort of late 20s to mid-30s, somewhere in that range because they, they can old you up or young you up. Um, so it needs to be someone that can, that can have that starting out, say, at 20 and finishing at 30. They can they can do so much with makeup and CGI now. But Travis Fimmel, he, he, I think he'd be great. And uh, if money was no object, I'd say Chris Pratt. I think he'd be great. Um, but th- those things are all pie in the sky until uh, you know until they've got their budgets allocated and uh, and they and they go through the casting process. 
So what is the what is the process for the film? I mean, like, when would we could we potentially expect to be uh, seeing something come out? It all depends on how they get on with um, with um, with casting and, and and that process, because often if they if they're lucky and they get a, 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 a you know a name a, a named actor a big name actor or, or someone uh, like that they they're often sort of booked in advance they might say oh, you know John can do it but not until summer 2018 because he's committed to um all all these other things that he's doing uh so that can that can slow the process down also getting their budgets together um can take time and and um access to locations because they they need to sort of they need to have the Colombian jungle they need to have the Russian tundra they need to have the Middle East. They, you know, there's so many, there's a lot to coordinate in terms of lo- locations as well. And of course, access to rigs. You've got to, you've got to get it. You've got to get access to rigs, which is, as you well know, time dependent. Of course. So, although there's probably there's a, a few kicking around at the moment, so uh, might, yeah, be, might be right lo- timely. I'd, I'd love to see them start production um, early next year, uh, which is the plan. Wow. Um, in which case. Um, you could be walking into a cinema in two years' time and, and watching uh, Don't Tell Mum. Well, in the meantime, while we wait with bated breath, uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your writing and, and your projects on, uh, on the internet? Uh, I, I have a website that's just recently uh, been launched. It's a new and improved version of the appalling thing that I had before. Um, and I, do you know what? I should, I should be able to rattle this off the top of my head. I think it's pcarter.com.au it, sh- it sure is i was looking at it earlier today so yep there you are that's that's it and that's that's got all the all the all the stuff on it um about the books and what's going on but i'll uh, i'll put a link to it in the in the show notes so so those who are driving to work at the moment don't have to scribble it down um and oh good on you thanks crash on the freeway well paul uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me this evening it's been a blast and uh i hope i get to meet you in person uh, next time we're in the same time zone Oh, next time I'm in H-Town. Absolutely. I shall look you up. Sounds I love good, Houston. We'll, uh, we'll grab a Macallan. We'll, grab, we'll go to Poison Girl and we'll have a Macallan. That's this bar on West, Westheimer. Right. I'll, uh, um, I'll scope it out. Yeah, with Poison Girl. They've got excellent scotch in there and um, bourbon as well. And I love it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> good on you, Ryan. Thanks, mate. All right. Cheers, mate. Really appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll chat to you soon. No worries. Bye. Bye. G'day, ladies and gents. Rowan here again. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to know who else you'd like to hear on the show. Head to the show's website, crudeconversations.com and drop me a note there. While you're there, you can check out all the other episodes or simply search for Crude Conversations on iTunes and click subscribe. Once again, thanks for listening and thanks for being part of the conversation. (laughs) 